Well, good and good afternoon. When preaching, it's best to take a full unit of scripture, a complete portion, or a portion that it completes a unit. unit. And uh, usually, when we're preaching the epistles, like we were doing in, in Philippians, these are very small units, a couple of verses, and it's a little easier to, to work through those. In the Old Testament, they tend to be larger portions of text. And here in Ecclesiastes, we actually get some large ones and we get some short ones. This week, it is going to be a, a bit longer, 33 verses. This is the largest unit or section in, in Ecclesiastes. And I explain that to you so that you don't sit there wondering to yourself, well, why didn't he divide this into smaller sections? And I, and I just want you to know I, I didn't do that because that'd be like taking The Hobbit and then dividing it into three movies. <laughs> And thinking you're making this easier to understand, it really wouldn't be helpful. So the way we're going to do this, the way we're going to handle this, is we're going to read this first portion, uh, then we're going to pray, and then we're going to get into it, unpack it, uh, and then we're going to read each other section as we get to it in the text. That way we don't read a giant section at the beginning. So that does mean that other than this first portion, you're going to need a Bible. There are some Bibles in your pews, and as Jonathan Edwards always said, you can also use your phones to look it up. So, Ecclesiastes, beginning in chapter 1, verse 12. We'll read to the end of the chapter. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. God, we want meaning. We want joy in life. We want to live with purpose. We want the very things the author of Ecclesiastes sought. Yet he was much wiser than we much more capable of fulfilling his desired pleasures. May we learn from him. and May we find our joy and our satisfaction in this life from knowing and being known by Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Almost every child at some point in their life has to do a science project. Some children do amazing science projects. Uh, things that are truly interesting, research, things that uh, are thought out and everything is put into it. And I can remember back when I was in the fifth grade, I actually had to put together one of these science projects, only mine was not amazing. Mine was really, really stupid. Looking back, I can see just how much. So, uh, like all projects, though, it followed a basic scientific method. I asked the question, what liquid is best for growing pinto beans? Uh, my hypothesis was that water would make them grow best. So the procedure was that I was going to water, or pour liquids on them rather, uh, with these various variables. Can you say that? One would receive water, one would receive milk, one would receive Dr. Pepper, because this is Texas, 
one would receive lemonade, and because I was a boy in the fifth grade, one was going to receive urine. <laughs> After conducting the experiment, I, I vaguely remember the results of it. I, I do remember that water was indeed the best option. I am absolutely sure that the urine killed it. <laughs> and, and if I remember right, to various degrees and rates, everything else also killed the plants uh, as, as well. It was uh, turned in, and I'm sure I did fine on it. But what we see here in this text is what Solomon is Solomon exploring in this passage, rather, is, is very much an experiment as well. Uh, only unlike my own experiment, uh, in the fifth grade, he is brilliant. And he possesses nearly unlimited authority and unlimited cash to conduct this experiment. This was also vastly more interesting. His question is, is there anything that's not vanity or, or empty in this life under the sun, this, that is life in a fallen sinful world? And the procedure that he follows is to, to test the value of having wisdom and then to test the pursuit of pleasure, followed by a task of, uh, of asking if living wisely is worthwhile and, and finally to test to see if doing great works and producing great things might give some meaning to his life. And throughout this, we're going to see his analysis. We're going to, uh, we're going to see, uh, again, also at the very end, we'll see his conclusion. And so let's start with what we just read. This is the first experiment. It's a, uh, if great wisdom can help us make sense out of this life under the sun. Uh, this is the first place in the book, surprisingly, actually, where the where the author speaks in the first person. He begins by writing, I the preacher. And he continues to explain that he has applied his heart to making sense out of this world, using this great wisdom that he possesses. I want you to notice also in verse 13 that God is mentioned for the first time. He acknowledges that work is a gift of God. He also observes that it's often void of happiness. Most of us have experienced something along those lines. Uh, This section follows this basic pattern that's repeated twice. It's a statement followed by a a proverb. And it's worth noting, this is not a proverb that you find in the book of Proverbs. uh, But it's a short statement, a a poetic truth kind of statement. Uh, That's why it's a proverb. And and his first observation of of, of life is, is what we've seen before. All is vanity. But this time he adds this this phrase, this encouraging phrase, right? A, a thriving or thriving after the wind. He's saying that making sense out of life is a bit like trying to grab hold of the wind or trying to corral the wind into one, one certain area. It, it can't be done. And that's the point of the proverb in verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. You see, no amount of wisdom can make sense out of everything that we see in the world, a world that is cursed after the fall. We can't explain why some years back there was that tsunami out of nowhere. We can't explain why kind people end up getting cancer, and yet we witness people doing great evils, and yet they remain healthy. You could go on and on about all these things that are difficult to understand in the world. And his point is wisdom has its limitations. When a man with no hands asks you how many fingers he's holding holding up, it's going to place you in a very awkward situation. 
Because no matter how wise you are, you cannot count what's not there. Our wisdom cannot change reality. It cannot make sense of the world we live in. And that's often frustrating to us. He goes on. The second reflection is that wisdom might increase your sorrow. You remember, this is, this is King Solomon. Uh, 1 Kings 3.12, God is speaking. He says this of Solomon. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. And then in 1 Kings 4.29, just a chapter later, we read, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and breaths of mind like the sand of the seashore. He's a wise individual, made wise by God. And then in verse 18 here in Ecclesiastes, he says that wisdom can be depressing. The proverb is stated saying, For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. It's similar to our modern uh, phrase or statement that ignorance is bliss. Um, Not one of those incredibly encouraging statements, but ignorance is bliss. Really, think about the news. Uh, We tend to, to argue for the news, that it's valuable, that we need to know what's going on in the world, and to some degree, that's absolutely true, but... I mean, how many of you, after watching CNN or, or Fox News, find yourself more anxious, more troubled, more concerned about all the horrible things going on in the world, going around, on around the globe? And, and right to Solomon's point, this knowledge often brings us great sorrow. So having wisdom and, and knowledge is not a, means to, not a means to living life with meaning or life with satisfaction. Solomon then reflects on his his second experiment, that of self-indulgence. This is the the variable in the experiment that you may have wished at some point, you know, this is the one I'd like to try out. Uh, I think I could do better than Solomon on this. Uh, You wouldn't, I promise you that. But as we look at this, you need to understand one aspect of this is that pleasure itself is not evil. I think somewhere in history that idea has snuck in to our, our understanding of that. There are pleasures that are evil, There are pleasures that are commendable, but pleasure itself is not evil. Uh, In fact, later in this book, we're going to see that uh, pleasure or enjoyment is a gift of God, a gift that cannot carry the weight of of giving life meaning, but a gift nonetheless. Uh, So let's look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? Pleasure is vanity. He continues on in verse 3, look at this, writing in verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what, is, what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. He, he goes to the places so many before him and after him have gone in frustration as they search out for meaning. He goes to wine. He makes clear that he's not getting drunk. His phrase here, that his heart is still guiding him with wisdom. Uh, He just drinks enough to lighten his mind, to bring joy, to give some sense of satisfaction to his life. And this apparently fails because quickly he moves on, right? Uh, He quickly, he moves moves on to this next attempt, as we see in verse 4, verses 4 through 6, which say, I made great works. I built houses, 
and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Did you notice how selfish all of those things were? He was building houses and he planted vineyards for himself. He made gardens and parks and planted trees and made pools for himself. It's consumerism, not the things you and I would probably buy, but it's consumerism. He's, he's basically trying to recreate the Garden of Eden, some sort of paradise on earth. And, and that's not so unlike what each of us are in the process of doing in our own lives, yet all with different means to accomplish the same project. Uh, myself included, building our homes into these safe, comfortable places, which again is not sin. But as we see here, it will not fulfill us. It will not provide substance or meaning to your life. And then he continues in this consumeristic pursuit in verse 7. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. And I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. He possessed people to do his work for him. I'm not going to go into the slavery aspect of that too much, but it would be similar to us today hiring people to do our work for us, which again is not sin, but it's not going to give you the satisfaction or meaning to life that you might imagine. He possessed masses of livestock. That's like valuable equipment or or anything else of high value. And and then in verse 8 he says, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and, and the treasure of kings and providences. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, and my wisdom remained with me. See, he amasses more and and more wealth. And we wonder why you have so much wealth, and yet we realize that we all do that. We love to see that number on our savings account, no matter where we are in life, go up year after year after year. And when it goes down, that can be a very frustrating thing. Again, not evil, but it will not give you fulfillment in life. And then he pursues joy in, in the arts, specifically music. He, he purchases male and female singers. See, remember, he couldn't just download recordings of his favorite song. That wasn't an option for him. If he wanted to listen to a song, he had to actually have the musician, musicians right next to him. And so that's what he did. Yet in the collecting of music, there was no substance, no meaning to his life. He says that he also collected concubines, which to us sounds very evil. Uh, And it's seen to be clearly sin in the New Testament, uh, but it was not considered such in this culture. We can explain this or explore this at another time. I'd be glad to to do more research on that with you. But I want you to see here is that he sought purpose. He sought fulfillment in the experience of sex. And it's not unlike people today. Seeking fulfillment in their life through sexuality, even outside the boundaries that God has given us in this area. And see, this is a wonderful gift of God that's been misused in in the fallen world that we live in. And then in verse 10, we see that he gave into every desire that he had. He pursued it to the extreme. And the only reward was the pleasure itself. Nothing deeper, nothing more meaningful, nothing eternal. Verses 10 and 11 read like this. And whenever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. 
And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I'd expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This experiment of consumerism and pursuit of pleasure ends in the same way as the other aspects of this experiment. All is vanity. And despite all this effort, he found no substance, no purpose, nothing in all of these pleasures that life had to offer. So we need to settle for ourselves this question as well. You know, does consumerism really lead to a more meaningful life? Would winning the lottery today really give you the life you always wanted? Would it give you actual satisfaction? And the answer we see here in God's word, and through the experience of this experiment that Solomon is going through, is clearly no. Each of these things is like a mirage. If you've ever driven a long, flat road in the heat of summer, you've likely seen what looks like water across the, water, across the road. It looks very realistic. Uh, yet you never actually get there. It just moves further away and further away and further away. Uh, it's similar to this. We think to ourselves, if only we had a house. If only we had a larger house. If only I was done with college and working. If only I got this promotion. If only I owned this, or if only I owned that. Consumerism is a mirage of satisfaction, always just out of reach of our desperate hearts, fooling us over and over and over again. But it cannot satisfy the human soul. Verses 12 through 17, he considers living wise as a means to purpose. Before it was being wise, now it's actually living wise. He says, So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. And then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to them all. And then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then, then did I have to be so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also was vanity, for of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring, enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten, all how the wise dies just like the fool. And so I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after the wind. If you look at verses 13 and 14, they word it beautifully. There is more gain in wisdom than in folly as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Darkness here is a metaphor for spiritual blindness. If you've ever walked through the house in in darkness, you know just how much more frustrating that is than walking through the the, the house in light. Uh, You run into chairs, you step on things, uh, you might even step on Legos. It can be a very painful experience. You see, walking in the light, or with our eyes open, is much less frustrating process. How many times have you found yourself ignoring what God has said in his word and live the life equivalent of stepping barefoot on a Lego? In that sense, godly wisdom is of great benefit. Solomon, however, considers this on a wider angle, and he concludes that being wise will not prevent you from dying no matter how wise you are, and and that the wise 
and that the wise, just like the fool, will not be remembered in death. Some of you might be thinking, well, Solomon was wise, and he died, and we remember him, right? Well, I think that's the exception. Because he remembered in the word of God, which we remember every single week, will stand forever. You might also think, well, what about Socrates? He was wise, right? That's debatable. But given enough time, he would be forgotten. Uh, Yet even if he isn't completely forgotten, the point remains, even living with great wisdom does not give substance or meaning to our life. And I think a question to ask ourselves with this section is whether there are areas in our life where we are walking in darkness or with our eyes closed to the wisdom of God. And further, what frustrations would we avoid if we walked in the light with our eyes open? As this experiment continues, the last section seems to explain that when I die, I will no longer be on earth and my reputation will cease to exist. But... But my stuff, my stuff will remain here. So maybe, just maybe, there is purpose in that. Yet the result of this experiment also ends in vanity. Look at the way he says it, starting in verse 18. I I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be master of all which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. And so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is a vanity. We live. We accumulate a bunch of stuff, and then we die. And someone else enjoys that stuff. Uh, It reminds me, honestly, of Steve Jobs recently. Uh, While being spiritually blind, he was an intellectually brilliant man. Uh, He built a multi-billion dollar empire. Uh, Later in life, he, he designed this Amazing, 250-foot, 56-foot yacht. Uh, He named it Venus, and and it was something that was under construction. It cost $113 million to build. In 2012, it was completed, and it was launched out into the sea for its its maiden voyage. However, Steve Jobs died in October of 2011, having never set a single foot on this yacht that he was building. Today, his heirs own it. You don't even know who his heirs are, do you? Neither do I. It's basically the parable that we see Jesus telling in Luke 12, uh, 16 through 20. Jesus says, The land of a rich man produced plentiful, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Let's be rich towards God. 
Let's find our, our joy and our satisfaction in the gospel. Now verse 23 speaks about how work consumes our minds. But many of you know this experience. It says, For all, all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. Also, this also is vanity. Even when we're not working, we're thinking about it. We stress and we're anxious because we're looking to our work for meaning, for satisfaction, to see some success there. Uh, work cannot give real and lasting meaning to your life. It was never designed to do that. Now each variable in this experiment has absolutely failed. Life does not find purpose in being wise, nor in worldly pleasure or consumerism and sex, nor in living wisely or spending your, all your efforts on work. And so these last three verses are pretty significant as this unit comes to a conclusion. Uh, follow along as I read them beginning in verse 24. It says, There is nothing better for a person that it, than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. I think at first, this might seem contrary to everything we just learned. We're to find enjoyment in work. We should enjoy eating and drinking. But I want you to notice something different about this. Uh, that Solomon mentioned God back at the beginning of this passage, and then there is no mention of God again. Not until verse 24, where he says, This is from the hand of God. Eating and drinking and work is a gift of God. So keep that in mind, working hard and understanding that the work that you have to do is a gift of God. Um, let me reword that. Understand that working hard and that knowing that the work that you have from God is a gift from God are two very different things. This distinction that work is a good gift, even we as Christians often miss. Because if you remember, after God made Adam and Eve, they lived in a perfect world. They we're not under the curse of sin yet, and, and God gave them work to do in the garden. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Remember, that's before the fall, before sin. And the result of that work was food, as you see in the next verse, Genesis 2.16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Work was good, and there was enjoyment in it. After the fall, work continues, but it became hard. It became frustrating. It became difficult. And yet work has not become completely worthless. It still produces food for us to eat. Also remember that when Jesus is incarnate, when he's born as a man, he grows up and he works. He's a carpenter. He's making things out of wood, things like the chairs you're sitting in. Later, he's a teacher, and he works to, to heal people and to feed others. And now we read in Ecclesiastes, through the lens of the gospel, we must remember that in Jesus our work has been redeemed. Christians should find joy in the work that God has given us to do. Uh, whether you're pushing the boundaries of astrophysics or caring for a newborn child or whether you're writing an English paper, work is a gift of God. Now, 
This has different applications for us. You may be in a job that you love. Remember, it's a gift of God. Be thankful for that job. You may be in a job that you absolutely hate. I think we tend to hear about those jobs more often. I'm not suggesting that you pretend to like it. But I do want you to stop and realize that having that job is a a gift. A a gift from our gracious and sovereign God. The same is true for those of you in college. You, You may hate some of your classes, but remember, even that class is a gift of God for you to labor in. I also want you to consider what your options for work are. We often choose simply what pays most. Don't buy into that. To the degree that you are able to decide to do what God has given you real enjoyment in doing, do that. Work also provides us a place in the lives of people who need to hear the gospel. Don't forget that. Who need to see what a difference Jesus makes in the lives of Christians. And our dissatisfaction in our job doesn't exactly show our satisfaction in our Savior. Again, the solution is not to pretend everything is fine. The solution is to reorient your life, to find real satisfaction in Jesus Christ. And that means to stop looking in all the wrong places for satisfaction. You see, no matter how long I search the shelves at AutoZone, I am not going to find that amazing meal that my stomach is desiring. It's not there. So stop looking for satisfaction in your job or in your possessions. It's not there. You will not find it there. Christian, there's something else I I want us to see here in this last portion, something that we often fall into. Uh, We touched on it, but I want to make it a little more clear because we often forget that so many joys and pleasures in this world are a gift of God. And because of that, we fail to enjoy the gifts of God or we look for our enjoyment in them somewhere off in the future. How many of us have something in our life that we think will be the beginning of enjoyment? When I go to college, I'm going to have the freedom that I really want for enjoyment. Or when I have roommates, then everything is going to be great. And then usually a few months after that, it's when I don't have roommates, everything is going to be great. Uh, Or when I have a job, or, or when the debts are paid off, or when we have a house, or when we have kids, or when the business grows, when I buy this piece of technology or that piece of of fashion, when we can afford to go on vacation, then things will be good. You know, what is that something in your life that you believe, consciously or unconsciously, that if you get it, then you will have joy? Because you've got to get yourself to understand that's not true. You can look to your past experiences to understand that. How many people in the United States today are pursuing retirement as though only then could we relax and enjoy life? See, the someday joys prevent us from slowing down to enjoy the this-day joys, the gifts of God today. So stop and take inventory of your life. What do you have that God has given you as a gift? I know, yes, everything. Go deeper than that. Think about the specifics of what that actually looks like. Uh, And that's what our text is saying here. Verse 25, For apart from Him, that's God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Church, enjoy the gifts of God. Remembering to always do so according to the boundaries that God has set for them. Enjoy the taste of food. Remember, God put those taste buds on your tongue for a reason, for your enjoyment. And yet, don't become a glutton. If you're of age, enjoy wine. 
but don't become drunk. Enjoy sex and its proper place of marriage. Enjoy music, but don't make an idol out of it. Enjoy the stage of life that God has you in right now. Enjoy your time in college. Enjoy your, your single years. Enjoy the time of marriage before children. Enjoy parenting your children and older children and grown children. When we see all these things as a gift of God, we're doing what we're commanded to do in 1 Corinthians 10.31, which says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The same is true for work. It's, it's what we see in Colossians 3.16-17, where it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Hear this. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So let me summarize it like this. Because all worldly pursuits are empty, are, are lacking eternal purpose, we should find enjoyment in God's daily gifts of food and drink and work. Church, let's be mindful to thank God today and every day for his wonderful gifts. When you eat tonight... Take a moment to slow down and enjoy those flavors, to enjoy that gift of God, to be thankful. And when, when you go to work tomorrow, no matter how difficult that is, or class tomorrow, no matter how difficult that is, remember that this is a gift of God, an actual gift of God. Let's, let's pray. Lord, you have given so much, and so often we are discontent. Help us to see your good gifts, to enjoy your good gifts, and to be grateful for your good gifts. That we find vanity in everything, may we find purpose in you who alone have redeemed us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.